You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, so it's going to serve you to have your Bible open and there on your lap, so you'll want to make sure you've got those two places marked, Romans 11 and Matthew chapter 28. Those are the two places you're going to need to be. Now, if you have stumbled into Stonegate, this is your first time, you picked a great Sunday to visit. Um, We are starting a new series called Prayers, where essentially we're going to try to outline some prayers that we would like for for our church family to be praying for the future of our church. And really, this is a series that that we're going to be able to... um, to work through and clarify what it is that God has called us to be about as a church and how we're trying to do that. So it's going to allow us a a, a season here to clarify those sorts of things. So I think it's going to take us six or seven weeks, probably, well, actually like seven or eight weeks, a couple of months to work through all the different turns that we're going to need to take in this series. Um, But but we hope this is going to really serve everyone in our church family as we try to clarify these things. Okay, so, and let me just, before we jump in, let me try to give you a reason why I feel like it's really important that we do this series and why it is I feel like about five months ago now, God impressed it upon my heart that as soon as we finished Money and Possession, that we need to spend an ex, like an extended season working through vision and values of our church. And let me, let me start by just addressing it on a personal level. Have you noticed this tendency in you that, that when you just put your head down and you start working in your life, so, so you've got, a, a, maybe it's a marriage going, you've got a job going, you've got relationships going, you've got friendships to maintain, you've, you've got recreational stuff that you do, you just got your head down in life and you're just doing what you do. Have you noticed this tendency in you that as your head's down and working in life, this tendency for you to forget the reason for your life? See, we're we're all really prone to that. And you need to be self-aware on that if you're not. That as you have your head down in the rhythm and routine of your life, that you so easily can lose sight of the reason that you're alive. Like why it is that you exist. Okay, now take that that personal tendency that we all have and gather us all together as a church and just imagine what happens, right? So so as a church, here's the reason for this series. As, As we love and are participating in the life of a local church, so we put our head down and we're accomplishing things. So we're serving, we're doing this, we're doing that. We've got all these things going. We are so prone and our tendency is going to be as human beings to forget the reason that we even have a church. We're all really prone to that. Because we're just doing the thing here to forget the reason that we exist, to forget what we as a church are about, what it is that God has called us to do. So so that's the angst. I want to make sure you know what it is that we're about. Why it is that the church exists, why it is that Stonegate exists, and how we're trying to go about accomplishing what it is that God has called us to do. So here's the first turn. This is all I'm trying to accomplish this morning. I, I just want to lay the framework and the, kind of the ground, kind of think, groundwork on this, this whole set of sermons by answering the question, what is it that we are about as a church? Stonegate, what is it that we're about? Okay, now to answer that question, we've actually got to zoom out and answer several other questions first. And we've got to really get to the big question. Before we can answer this question, what are we about? We've got to answer this question. What is it that God is about? Like, what's he about? Like, what he's about informs what we're about. So here's the first question. I've really got four questions that we're going to ask and answer today. Here's the first one, though. What is God about? 
Like if we're ever going to get to the bottom of what Stonegate should be about, this question has to come into clear view in you and in me. So what is it that God is about? This is where Romans 11 is going to be a big help for us. Romans 11. And so here's the context. Before we get to verse 33, here's the context of Romans 11. Romans, if you want like one book of the Bible that explains the whole Bible, Romans is like the book. If you want the whole Bible condensed into 16 chapters, Romans is your best shot at that. So when you open up in Romans, you've got Romans 1, 2, and 3. Probably the best three chapter summary of what the gospel is in the entire Bible. What man's problem is before God and how God meets our problem in the life, person, and work of Jesus. So, so we get a clear view of that in Romans 1 through 3. Then you get to 4 and 5, and we see a picture of what faith is. Then you get to 6 and 7, and you get a picture of what, like the pathway to Christ's likeness or sanctification or maturing, what that looks like. And then you get to chapter 8, and if you want to memorize one chapter of the Bible, just one, Romans 8 is your chapter. It is packed full of great promises that God makes to sons and daughters of his. So you get Romans 8. Then you get to Romans 9 through 11. And in Romans 9 through 11, Paul is beginning to paint a breathtaking view of God's sovereignty as it relates to salvation. About how God pursues and chases and runs down men and women and saves them. It's this beautiful picture of how God does that. And then you get to the end of Romans 11 and it's like Paul is about to explode on the inside. Like he's just spent 11 chapters unfolding all that God has done for us in Jesus, how this thing rolls out and you get to the end of Romans 11 and he is just beside himself. It's almost as if he is completely overwhelmed. Like when you look above verse 33 in your Bible, if you have an ESV, it should say doxology. And doxology means a glory statement. That Paul is about to give a glory statement. It's as if he is beside himself here, overwhelmed. And, and what you have in Romans eleven thirty three through 36 is just a spillover, an overflow of that. So this is where you pick it up in, in verse 33. Paul, in awe of God, says this. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. We say this a lot around, around here, but the most important thought you will ever think is the one immediately following the word God. Th- that thought that you just had when you heard the word God spoken determines the trajectory of your life. The, the course of your life is determined by that thought. And, and what you see here is Paul has big, beautiful thoughts of God. I mean, it's almost as if it just starts to spill out of him, just like a praise and adoration and proclamation on who God is, that the riches of his, of his wisdom and, and, and insight and knowledge, it just begins to spill out, spill out of Paul. Then you get to verse 34. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? That's a rhetorical question. Okay, a rhetorical question isn't asking a question, it's making a statement. Men, when, when your wife looks at you and says, hey, do, do those jeans belong on the floor? She's not asking a question. She's making a statement. She's telling you they don't belong there, so pick them up. And this is what's happening. Paul's not asking you a question here. He's making a statement that God doesn't need your counsel. He doesn't need my counsel. We need his counsel. It's a rhetorical question. And then he goes on, verse 35, another one. Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Rhetorical question. 
It's making a statement. You can't put God in a position where he owes you something. You can't do that. There's no way for you to bribe God. That's impossible. That God doesn't owe any one of us anything. And then you get to verse 36. In verse 36 is the summary statement of the first 11 chapters of Romans. So you've got summary statement packed into verse 36 where Paul says this. For from him and through him and to him are all things. And that's a massive statement. It's saying that that everything you see, everything that exists is from God. He is the source of everything. That's where it all begins. But, But everything is also through him. So he is the sustainer of everything. And everything at the end of this thing is going to end with him. He is the end of all things. I mean, I think it would be good for us just to make sure our heart is recalibrated around this reality. That you, me, every human being that exists on the planet will one day find themselves before God Almighty. And in that moment, your only hope, my only hope, our only hope is Jesus. Amen? It'd be good for us to know that and to be thinking about that. And then you've got these last six words. And in these last six words, Paul is going to pull back the curtain so you can see what it is that God is about. Like what it is that God is doing. What it is that God is primarily concerned about. Last six words goes like this. To him, to God, be glory forever. Amen. Welcome to the purpose and plan and mission of God. This is it. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Maybe we could answer it this way. What is God about? Here's the answer. God is about the glory of God. That's what God's about. God is about the glory of God. So when we say that, what we mean by that is that God is making, he is about making his name famous. He is about people knowing and loving and looking at him. God is about setting all that he is on a pedestal For the world to see and to savor. So his justice, his wisdom, his love, his grace, his mercy. All of his attributes on display so everyone can see all that he is. That's what God's about. He is about his own glory. God is about the glory of God. Okay, now here's here's what that implies. And, And we need to connect the dots between these two things. In saying that God is about the glory of God, here's what that means. That God is not primarily about you. God is not primarily about you. That's a little bit humbling, isn't it? See, I think in our like 21st century Western culture, when we open up the Bible, here's what we assume. We're the star of the Bible. Like whatever's at the center of the Bible, that's that's us. Things rotate around us. So when we open up the Bible, we read it as if this whole thing is about us. And here's what we're trying to say. It's not about you. It's not about you. It's about God. That's what the Bible is about. The Bible is about God and how he meets our biggest problem in Jesus. That's what the Bible is about. It's about God. It's about setting, it's about setting God on display for the world to see. So that means it's not primarily about you. That God is not primarily about you. Uh, maybe you could think of it this way. If we're going to put it in movie language... That when we think of history as a movie, here's what we think. When it becomes our kind of time to be on the scene or somewhere in in the, you know, in the picture, here's what we think about the movie. The movie is about us. And I just want to say this again. You're not the star of the movie. God is the star of the movie. 
The movie's not even about you. The movie is about God. That's, that's what the movie's about. What, what your role and what my role are, we're kind of like that little distant guy in the background that you have to strain really hard to see somewhere back there. And about the time you can make him out in the background, he disappears. That's our role in the movie. This thing is about God. Everything exists because of God. God is about the glory of God. Okay, so look at the context of Romans 11 here. Think about this. Paul is saying that the salvation of the the Jews and the Gentiles. Now, most of us in the room will be considered Gentiles. So your salvation will be included in here. Paul's saying that the salvation of the Jews and Gentiles is more for God. It's about the glory of God. It's more for God than it is for them or you. See, if God has saved you, it says more about the Savior than it does the saved. It says more about the Savior than the saved. It says something about the saved, but it says more about the Savior than the saved. God is primarily about the glory of God, about his attributes being on display for people to see and savor. That's what he's primarily about. That doesn't mean that God doesn't care for you. He does care for you. But in caring for you, it says more about him than you. Maybe you could think of this in terms of cat and dog theology. I've heard it explained this way. And just as, for the record, I don't like cats. This fits really well anyway. So, so cat and dog theology. Here's how a cat operates. I've got this person. They provide for me. They give me water. They take out the, tr- you know, the trash. They, they do all of that for me. They, they, they provide for me. They do all these things for me. They meet my every need. Therefore, a cat says, I must be God. A dog, on the other hand, looks at, looks at his master and says, he provides for me, gives me water, gives me food, does everything I need to survive. Therefore, he must be God. See, and a lot of us have cat theology. That's our problem. Is that it's all about us. When we need some dog theology around here, amen to that, where it's about God. God caring for you says more about God than it does you. This is the point. God, okay, maybe you could ask it this way. Why is it that God does what God does? Answer, the glory of God. That's why he does it. Okay, now I don't want you to take just my word for it. I'm going to try to reel off a list of scriptures. They're going to be up on the screen for you from Genesis to Revelation, just so you can see how like the Bible is saturated with this idea. That this is at the core of what God is about. So you would expect to find it all throughout the Bible. And ironically, you do. It's all throughout the Bible. That God is about the glory of God. So let me just reel off a few of these for you. So we'll just call them glory text. Here we go. First off, Isaiah 48, 9 through 11. This is going to show us that God is central to God. That God is really about the glory of God. So here we go. Isaiah 49, 9 through 11. For my name's sake. Now, when you see the word or the, the phrase namesake, that is exactly like a, a synonym to saying for my glory. When he says for my name's sake, he's saying it's about my glory. That's what why I'm doing this thing. Okay, so he goes on. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. Why does he defer his anger? For his name's sake. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it uh, for you that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profane? And listen to this last statement. My glory I will not give to another. Can I just tell you, God's pretty passionate about hogging all the glory, about not sharing it with you, about this thing actually being about him, not about you. God's pretty passionate about that. 
He's not out for sharing that. We go on. Um, why was man created? Isaiah 43, 6-7. Man was created for the glory of God. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I have formed and made. Do you want to know why you exist? Why you exist? Why you are breathing air right now? Do you know why that is? For the glory of God. That's why. That's why you exist. Why did God call Israel for his glory? Isaiah 49, 3. And he said to me, you are my servant Israel in whom I will be glorified. Why did he rescue Israel from Egypt? Psalms 106, 7 and 8. For his glory. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Yet he, God, saved them. Why did he save them? For his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. It's because of God that he saved them. It's because the glory of God was at stake in saving them. Why did God raise up Pharaoh? Romans 9, 17. For the scripture, uh, scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I've raised you up. Why? That I might show, God saying this, I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. That's why God rose Pharaoh up. Why did God destroy Pharaoh? Exodus 14, 4 and 18. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. And why, did he, why is that all going to happen? And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all of his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. God is not out to share this thing. The universe is about God. All about God. Coming down here, um, why did God save Israel, or why did God give Israel victory in the promised land? Second Samuel seven twenty three. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on on earth whom God went to redeem to be His people? Why did He do that? Why, why did He push out the gods in, in, in the promised land, making Himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods? Why did God restore Israel from exile? Same reason, for the glory of God. Ezekiel uh, 36, 22 and 23. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act. In other words, it's not about you. The, the, the reason that God does what he does is, is not about you. It, it's about God. Look at what he goes on to say here. It's not about you, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations, here's why God does things. And the nations will know that I am the Lord. Why does God provide for his people? Psalms 23, one through three. The Lord is my shepherd. And I shall not want. Now, now, why is he a shepherd? And why does he make it where you don't want? Keep reading here. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Why does God do that? He leads me beside still waters. Why? He restores my soul. Why? He leads me in paths of righteousness. Why? For his name's sake. That's why. See, when God is kind to you and provides for you, it says more about God than you. 
The mission of Jesus was about the glory of God. John 7, 18, the one who speaks in his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of God, of, of him who, who sent him is true. And in him, there is no falsehood. Why does God save and adopt sons and daughters? Why does God do that? Ephesians 1, 6, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as, son, as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Now, why did he do all of that? Here's the reason. Verse 6. To the praise of his glorious grace. That's why. For, for his glory, for his name. To the praise of his glorious grace. Um, why do we do good works? What, what are good works? What are they about? Um, this is Matthew 5, 16. Also, 1 Peter 2, 12. 1 Peter 2 says this. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So why? So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and what? And glorify God on the day of visitation. It is about the glory of God. Jesus endured his final hours. Why? For the glory of God. This is John 12 and John 17. This is John 12. Now my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. If you want to know what Jesus is about, it is about the glory of his father. That's what he's about. Everything we do is meant to be for the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whatever you do, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. It's not about you, he's saying. This is about God. So whatever you're doing, you need to be doing it for God. If you want to see maybe just the best description of the plan of God, Habakkuk 2 is the, the answer. What, what is God about? What is God doing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. If you don't know what, God about, what God's about, this is it. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. That's what he's doing. You want a picture of heaven? Revelation 21. This is the picture about the glory of God in heaven. The 12 gates were 12, 12 pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was of pure gold, like transparent glass. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The Bible, like Genesis to Revelation, here's what it's screaming to you and I. That God is about the glory of God. That's what he's about. N not primarily about you. He's primarily about the glory of God. So let me, let me ask you the question. Is this the way you see life? Is this the way you see life? That, that your life exists for the glory of God. It's not about you. It's about God. Do you see life this way? And, and see, I, I think this is the thing that everyone in the room this morning needs to hear the Spirit press upon you. You need to hear this statement. I need to hear this statement. We as a church need to hear this statement. It's not about you and, I, you and I. You and I need to get over ourselves. You need to get over yourself. I need to get over myself. We as a church need to get over us. That this thing is not about us. It is about God. God is the point. You're not the point. I'm not the point. We are the point. God is the point. Can we all go there? Can we all see that? God is the point. I want to make this just as clear as I can. This thing is about God. God is about the glory of God. And can I just, maybe just friendly encouragement tell you this, that as soon as you start submitting to that and getting that and living in that, the better your life is going to be. The better your life's going to be. Dads in the room, 
Husbands in the room, can I just say your marriage is going to be a lot better when you're not the point, when you actually get over yourself? See, because when you're the point, do you know what your wife is? She's your servant to help make sure you can build your own little personal kingdom. And that'll crush your marriage. See, see when you're the point, parenting falls apart. See, when, when you're the point as a parent, you're the parent that's getting into an argument with the referee at a fourth grade football game. It's fourth grade football. See, when you're the point, it matters. When you're the point, you're going to live vicariously through your kids. See, the, the sooner you can get over you, the better off you're going to be. See, when, when it's all about you, you're not patient with people because they're sabotaging you building your own little personal kingdom. So you're easily angered. You're impatient. You're all of that. Teenagers in the room. Can I, I mean, just to give you some loving encouragement. As soon as you can get over you, your life will be so much better in so many different ways. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a teenager should have gotten us back on that parenting thing a minute ago, right? And so, teenagers, can, can you just hear that though? Man, I love you. And I'm saying this because I love you. As soon as you can get over you, your life will be a lot better. You'll actually be free to enjoy life and people, your family, your school, your, your friends. You'll actually be free to enjoy them as soon as you can get over you. See, the problem is we've got to get over us, though. This thing is about the glory of God. It's not about you. And maybe even to throw one more kind of statement in on this, as long as you're the point of the universe, as long as everything else God included revolves around you, you're going to be a slave to a million different sins. A slave to a million different sins. It's only when we begin to orbit around God that life actually works as God intended it to work. So God is about the glory of God. Now, let me just throw this one caveat and we'll keep moving. Um, in saying that God is about the glory of God, this is not a vain impulse on the part of God. It's, it's, not, it's not a vain, weird, jealous thing. That's not the point here. I mean, think about this from God's perspective for just a second. When he gives us the command that we need to love him above everything else, wouldn't you think that should apply to God? I mean, who is he going to put as the, like the supreme object of his affection? You? Me? I mean, I don't think that's a good idea. So, so if you'll look at it from God's perspective for a minute, I, I think you'll see that if God were anything other than being about his own glory, that God would actually be an idolater. So from God's perspective, this makes perfect sense. This is not just some vain impulse. And it's actually really good for you. Your joy is tied to this. This is the way God made the universe to work. For him to be in the middle, for you to revolve around him. And the sooner we can get on the same page in that, as soon as we can get out of the center and allow God to be the center and us to orbit around him, the better off things will work for you. So God is about the glory of God. Now that allows us to answer question number two, what is Stonegate about? So in light of God being about the glory of God, this is what Stonegate is about. Stonegate is about the glory of God. That's what we're about. We're not about you. We're not about me. We're not about us. We are about the glory of God. See, there can only be one thing ultimate in a church. There can only be one thing at the top of the list. You can have a lot of important things. You can have a lot of just sort of priorities around your place. You can have a lot of critical things, but you can only have one ultimate thing. And we are saying the ultimate thing is not you. The ultimate thing is not me. The ultimate thing is the glory of God. That is what we are after. That's what we're pursuing. That's what we want to see had. We want to be a church that 
top of the list sense, ultimate sense that makes much of God. That's what we want to be about. We are about the glory of God. Now, um, here's what I'm aware of in a moment like this. I think it's easy for us to, to nod our head and even say, yes, I agree that we as a church should be about that. I think it's really easy to hear statements like this, or it's easier to hear statements like this, than it is to actually have our life bent around them. Like, it's a lot easier for us to hear this than it is to actually say, God, put that at the center of the way I feel and think and see life. That this thing is really about you. My marriage exists more for you than it does for me. My kids, more for you than it does for me. My job, more for you than it does for me. That this thing is about you. See, it's a lot easier to say that than it is to actually be bent around it. So let me just press this down with a, with a question for you. I, I want to present two stories for you. And then for you to have to answer the question, which story would you choose? Story number one. Story number one goes like this. Um, you've got great health. You've got more wealth than you know what to do with. You've got a great family. You've got nice kids. They're, they're moral, good kids. Um, you've got a great job. You've got a great wife. Things are going great for you. You live to your 95 and you die peacefully somewhere. But you make nothing of God. Story number two. You get smashed to pieces in a million different ways. You have no health. I mean, poverty is you. You're, you're like right beside poverty in the dictionary. You've got no name. People don't know. You're a nobody from nowhere. People don't know you. You have no marriage. You, you got no kids in the deal. You're cut down at 29 before the prime of your life, but you made much of God. If those are your two stories, which would you choose? And I think it would be God's desire, and it would definitely be my hope, and I think it would require great work from God for our church family to say without reservation, give me story two. Give me story two. That, that what's ultimate is the glory of God. What's ultimate is we're going to make much of Jesus. What's a preference? What's not priority? What's a preference is do we live till we're 90? What's a preference is do we get married? What's a preference is, is do we have kids? What's a preference is do we have money? What's a preference is do we have a name? All of those are preferences, but the ultimate priority is making much of Jesus. I think it would be God honoring. And I think it would be God's desire for us to go there. Whatever preference God gives us, that the ultimate thing is, God, we want our life, we want our church to make much of you. So Stonegate is about the glory of God. Question number three. How does God glorify himself? Question number three. is How does God like go about getting glory for himself? Okay, so it's one thing to say that God is about the glory of God. It's another thing now to answer the question, how does God get most glory for himself? Now, if, if we're going to answer that, I think there's, there's several ways you could, actually, there's about a million ways you could go about answering it. Um, one way would be to, to zoom out and to look at it from a, from a big picture perspective. And we might point to like a, maybe a Psalms 19, that the heavens declare the glory of God. So, so we might say that, that if we'll just look up that, that from a big picture perspective, if we'll just look up and see the expanse that is above us, that is God getting glory for himself. When you look up and see the billions of stars and galaxies and the size of the universe, that is saying something about God, that God is that big, bigger. See, it's saying something about God. 
So, so we could think of it in terms of like from that big picture perspective, we could zoom in to the grit and grind of our life and talk about the, the smell and the taste of a great steak. That has something to do with the glory of God. Do you know that? We could talk about your marriage. We could talk about kids. We could talk about the grace of good friendships. All of those have to do with the glory of God. All of those are are ways that God goes about getting glory for himself. But if we want to talk about like the top of the list sense of how God goes about getting glory for himself, here's the top of the list sense. How does God get most glory for himself? It would answer. It's through God's covenant community, the church. That's how God goes about getting most glory for himself. This is an Ephesians 3.10 issue. That through the church, through men and women redeemed by Jesus, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God. You could also just insert in there the glory of God, the attributes of God. The manifold wisdom of God will be made known to the rulers and authority in the heavenly places. The church exists for the glory of God. It is the primary way that God secures glory for himself. When when men and women turn from sin and turn to Jesus as the source of life, everything they need for security, satisfaction, and significance, when we do that, we are giving most glory to God. This is like bringing Genesis 127 that we're created in the image of God. Isaiah 43, 6 and 7 that we're made for, created for the glory of God together. See, God is cluing us into something here. The way God gets most glory is when the prize of his creation, men and women, look to him for everything they need. That's how. The church. Okay, so we need to answer this last question. In light of that, in light of that, how does Stonegate glorify God? So it's one thing to say that we're about the glory of God. It's another thing to say, and this is specifically how it is that we accomplish great glory for God. How it is that we extend the glory of God. How it is that we push forward the glory of God. And that's where Matthew 28 is going to help us. So make sure you flip there. Matthew chapter 28. How does someone glorify God? Here's the picture I want you to see. Matthew chapter 28, we're going to start in verse 18. Jesus says this, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now there's a lot packed into that statement that we'll have to save for a future sermon someday. But there's a lot in there. Because in in light of what he just said, in light of that, he's going to give them the commands in verse 19. So, So there's a lot there. But then you get to verse 19. Go, therefore, so therefore is in light of the previous statement, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So if you want to know how it is that Stonegate can get most glory for God, here is the answer. Stonegate glorifies God by making disciples. That's how. By making disciples. When you think about disciple making, and this is going to be really important that we're all clear on this. When you think about disciple making, it's not an either or option between that and evangelism. Do you know that? Like, here's how you make a disciple. So let's just go through this so we all see this. Part one of disciple making is gospel proclamation. 
That means that you and I have to, to be praying for people who don't know Jesus. We actually have to befriend people and invite them into our life. You know their kids, I, that whole thing goes down. Where they're in our life, we have gospel conversations. It just naturally flows from us because the gospel is central to us. Jesus means everything to us. So we're having gospel conversations. And you know what happens in a church that starts to do that? God miraculously starts to save people. So so part one of disciple making is gospel proclamation and then God saving. Part two of disciple making is gospel proclamation and those saved people actually growing up and maturing as a believer. It's a both and issue. It's not an either or. Look at how this plays out. So you get the, the go make disciples of all nations. There's gospel proclamation in there. But then verse 19, and he's going to kind of define some of what a disciple is. You need to baptize him in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So disciples are baptized. If they're, they're a Christian, they've expressed and, and humbled themselves before God, trusted and treasured God, and God has saved them, then they need to be baptized. And if you have never been baptized, um, August the 26th, we're going to be doing that. We'd love to serve you in that way and celebrate with you on, on August the 26th. So they're baptized. Then it goes on in verse 20. This is a disciple. Okay, you don't have discipleship unless you have these things happening. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Teaching them to observe. So see, it's not just about gospel proclamation and making converts. It's about making fully functioning disciples. People who are progressing. People who are growing. People who are maturing. It is perfectly fine for a person to be immature when they come into a church. It is not okay for a church to be satisfied with that. That's not okay. Let me just say this as clearly as I can. We are about both. We are about getting the gospel to people who desperately need it. We are about proclaiming the gospel so God can save. And we are also about proclaiming the gospel so those saved people can actually grow up into who they are. We are about both of those things. Okay, now I want to clarify that because in our church culture, the view of success in our church culture is just false. It's crazy. So I've been in ministry circles long enough to know now that what people mean when they say, how are you doing? Like, how's the ministry going? How's Stonegate going? How's whatever going? I know what they mean. They mean how many rear ends are sitting in a chair on Sunday morning. That's what they mean. And listen, that is a false view of what success is in ministry. It is not just about how big of a crowd we can, we can kind of assemble here. That's a false view of success. It is about us proclaiming the gospel to people who desperately need it and us watching God as we proclaim the gospel to people who are already saved, grow them. It is about both of those two things. You can be a big church and not glorify God. Do we know that? You can be a small church and glorify God. Glorifying God is not based primarily on the size of your place. That's not what it's based on. It is based most squarely on the conformity of Christ in your place. See, that is where God shines most brightly through a church is when they're actually conforming into the image of Jesus, looking more and more like Jesus. And listen, this this is hard to say, but it's true that most churches would be just fine if if the building is full, the budget is met, um, you know, the songs kind of stirred up a little bit of emotion, that sermon had a nice flair to it, with or without God, and regardless of the spiritual condition of their people. And that's not us. That we are about the glory of God. That means we've got to be great disciple makers. Proclaiming the gospel, watching God save, proclaiming the gospel, and watching God grow people up to maturity. Both of those two things. 
right? That means we're going to have to walk with one another in sin, that we're going to actually have to care about people's holiness and how they're living. All, all of those things, that we care about all of that. So, so we're about the glory of God and we're doing that through making disciples. So let me just use our language to describe what it is that Stonegate is about. This is our language to describe it. Stonegate's about, and this should be on the screen for you, <clears throat> extending the glory of God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is what we're about. That is the never-changing mission of our church because it's God's never-changing mission. Okay, so this is what we're about. We're about extending the glory of God through making disciples, by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we've changed some terminology here over the last little bit. We used to say by lives changed. So extending the glory of God through lives changed by the gospel. We're not changing the content of what we're saying. We're just trying to make it more clear. Lives changed. I think it's just a better way to say this. I mean, disciple making is a better way to say lives changed. It's just a more clear and explicit way to say, this is what we're about. We're about making great disciples. That is what God has called us to do. That is what we want to do. That's what all of our chips in are to do. This is what we're about. We're about making disciples through the gospel. Okay, now in light of that, I want to conclude with uh, four statements in light of this being the never-changing mission. In light of us being a place where it is about the glory of God, about disciple-making, through the gospel of Jesus Christ, in light of that, four statements. Number one, this mission is central. I want to say this again. It's the never-changing mission of Stonegate because it's the never-changing mission of God. So this is central. This is what we're about. Now, I, I want the Spirit just to give you ears to hear what I'm about to say. Our greatest danger at Stonegate Church is mission drift. Our, and everyone look at me right here. Our greatest dangers are for your personal preferences and my personal preferences to creep in front of gospel priority. That's the danger. That is the most significant danger that we have in this room is mission drift, that we lose sight of what's central. And so I think it's important for us just to throw this question out, for you to, to, to test your heart, me to test my heart, to make sure that this question is out there and being dealt with. Are there any elements right now where your personal preferences have crept in front of what is priority around here? Of what God has primarily called us to be and do? And if so, this is a great day for me to repent and a great day for you to repent to get before God and turn from that and to say, God, will you help make this the central thing for me, the central thing for us? So the mission is central. Number two, the mission is satisfying. You were created to have God in the center of your life. Do you know that? You were created to orbit around God, not for God to orbit around you. And your life is not going to work like it's supposed to work, like God created it to work, until you fall into rhythm with the way God has made this thing. Maybe I could say it this way. Your joy in life is tethered to your mission in life. And see, if your mission is not about the glory of God, if it's about your own glory, if it's about your own name, your own reputation, your joy will always suffer. Until you can get over you, it's impossible to have sustained joy in your life. I mean, God's created the world not to work that way. The way the world works is you get God in the center, sustained joy flows from that. Your joy in life is tethered to your mission in life. 
Like this is, this is a good thing for you to know and to hear because your joy is tethered to it. Until we get on this mission with God, we're never going to have the sort of joy that God would want us to have. So your satisfaction is dependent upon this mission. Number three, this mission is personal. It's personal. It's not enough for us to say this is who we are as a church. This has got to be pressed down over your life and over your family. See, it's not enough for us to say, well, God is about that, so we're about that as a church. We all have to get to the point where we're saying, God is about that, so my life is about that. I am about that. My family is about that. We need God to make it as personal, as personal for us as it was for Paul in Philippians 1, 20 and 21. Where, where Paul's going to essentially get before God and pray, God, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed but I will have sufficient courage. Now, if you are going to answer the question, what do you need sufficient courage for today? What's the answer to that for you? What do you need sufficient courage to make sure this happens? Here's Paul's answer. God, that I will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Translated. If I live tomorrow, it's about the glory of God. God, give me courage to do that. If I die tomorrow, it is about the glory of God. God, give me courage to do that. That our life is bent around what God is doing to that degree. That we are praying before God. God, give me courage like today. Live or die that this thing is about you. Not about me. For for me to orbit around you. Not, Not try to make you orbit around me. Give me courage so that today I can get over myself. Give me courage for that. See, that's got to be pressed to a personal level for you and I. If you're a teenager in the room, I want you to look up at me. Teenagers. Every teenager, make sure you take a quick look up here. I want to give you some homework on your way home today. Uh, On your way home, I would love for you to ask your parents two questions. Question number one. For you to look at your parents, if you have to write this down, paste it on your forehead, whatever you have to do to remember this. Question number one, mom and dad, what is it that we're about as a family? What is that? Not moms and dads. I want you, this is such a beautiful moment for you to be able to clarify. We are, we work a job, but we're not about a job. We, we do some recreational things, but we're not about recreation. We've got a marriage. We're not primarily about a marriage. What we are primarily about, what our family is about is the glory of God. That's what we're about. That we exist, our family exists to make much of God. That's what we're about. And then um, teenagers, look up, look up here. One more question. Because it's easy right now for your parents to say that. Okay, so, so here's the second question. For you to ask this next question. Okay, so if that's what we're about, how is it that we're getting after what we're about? How is it that we're actually like moving down, like moving the ball down the court as to what we're about? What what are we doing about that? Okay, I I hear us say that we're about the glory of God. How are we about that? And parents, I have no idea what you're about to say if they ask you that. But here's what I want to encourage you. You need to get before God so you actually have a legitimate answer for that. That you've got some sort of gospel-soaked ambitions for your life to make much of God, not just much of you. 
that you've got some sort of God-glorifying things, attempts that you're in the middle of right now that you would have to pray with Paul, give me courage so we can get there. So I don't know what that is, but your family needs them, my family needs them, you personally need them. And our church needs them. It's not just enough to say we are about the glory of God. Here's the next question. We've got to get serious about being about the glory of God. So it's got to be personal. As personal to you and me as it was to Paul. And lastly, number four. This mission needs our prayers. There's two reasons why I wanted to do this series. One is because I wanted to clarify and make sure that we're all seeing from the Bible what it is that God has called our church to be about. And to clarify how we're trying to get there. But secondly, here's the second reason I wanted to do this set of sermons. Is because I wanted to leave each set of sermons with a, or each sermon with a specific prayer for you to pray for the future of Stonegate. That if you want to put this on your fridge, whatever you want to do, but for you to have something specific that you would be interceding with, pestering God about, pleading with God to do among our church family. Here's the prayer. It'll be on the screen for you. So in light of all of this, that we would pray this to God for our church. God, regardless of the cost, whether by life or by death, regardless of the cost, keep our church centered on the priority of extending your glory through making disciples. That God, regardless of the cost, will you please do this? We're We're pleading with you. Will you do this? Keep our church centered on the priority of extending your glory through making disciples. This is what we're about. This is the never changing thing for our church. This is always going to be the thing for our church. Our chips are pushed in on this. We are full in. We are like over our head saying, this is what we are going to die doing. Live or die. This is what we're about. And may we all intercede, plead, pray with God that he would keep us centered right there. Like we would be right there today. We would be right there a week from now. We would be right there a year from now. And 10 years from now, 20 years from now, God willing, 100 years from now, Stonegate would be centered right there. Amen? Let's pray together. I'm going to give you just a second to, uh, to sit under that and allow the Spirit to press into your heart the things that needed to be pressed today and for the things that, that weren't useful or weren't helpful that the Spirit of God would wipe those away from you. And I think it would be fair to say that as we're praying this on a corporate level for our church, that I think it would be just worth pointing out that it's not going to happen for our church unless it happens for individual families, the individual families that make up our church. So I think it would be good if we personalize this, that it's not just God make our church or keep our church this. It's God, regardless of the cost, keep me, keep my family centered on the priority of extending your glory through both being a great disciple 
loving you, repenting of sin, running after you by being a great disciple and by making great disciples. God, help me be about that. Bend my life around that. Bend the life of my family around that. Man, I pray that God would give us some, just some vision for gospel-sized attempts. I mean, God-sized attempts that would just be all about making much of Jesus. Man, that he would do that for us. For our church that he would do that. For your family, for you personally. That God would do that for us. So God, we... Uh, we want to ask you to do a really special thing in our church. God, we, we want to ask you that for as long as we exist as a church, that we would be centered on what you are centered on, namely extending your glory through making disciples. So God, will you help us in that? Will you help our church in that? And God, I, I just want to take a second to pray for the individuals that make up our church. For me, for them, God, will you, will you bend our life around that priority? God, will you make us about that? God, will you help us see that our life exists more for you than it does for us? God, God will you help us get over ourselves? God, will you give us God-sized dreams for what it would look like to make much of you. God, will you help us in that? And as you're just sitting there praying for just a second, I want to address just if, if you are kicking the tires on Christianity and on Jesus and you've never stepped across the line of faith. I mean, what a, what a great morning to do that, just to recognize that you exist more for God than for you. And here's how you can make much glory for God this morning, is for you to bow the knee to Jesus and say, God, here I am, good, bad, ugly, all of me, here, here I am. God, will you save me? God, I am all yours. Here I am. And here's the beautiful thing about God, is he stands so ready and so willing to do that for you. And so, God, will you have your way in us? God, whatever you want to do in us, will, will, will you do that this morning? It's in your great name that we pray. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.